So I, I, I just want to start by saying that um, this is the first time that this teaching team has worked together. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we're really enjoying each other. <laughs> so much love and support. And it's, it's just a great team um, having a good time. So um, here we go. I am um, also, as Noli said, I've never done a New Year's Eve retreat before either, and the energy is really incredibly intense. (laughs) You all are like in some real intense spaces, right? (laughs) Just wanting to know the answer right now. (laughs) I'm really loving it. I don't know if you're having the same experience. (laughs) But it's been really fun and really appreciative of, of, of each and every one of you that I've had a chance to meet and the faces that I see in the hall and all of that. So it's really good. But the intensity of the New Year's Eve is really something. And it's um, and then, like we said earlier, when we started, this is not only just New Year, but a new decade, and which is supposed to have significance to us, you know. We're supposed to have significance. So what do I do in the next decade? As if it really is material. We make stuff up like that and get ourselves tight. Um, but, you know, it, it is. It's, it's like we want to get it better, right? We want to do something. We want the next year to be better. I mean, I've really never heard anyone say, I want the new year to be worse than the one that just happened. <laughs> you know, nobody ever says that. And so we're really trying to, um, to get tools and practices from this retreat and to walk into the new decade, into the new year. And, and I really have to say I think you made a good choice to be here. It's a really brave choice and courageous choice to be here at this time. And, um, yeah, so thank you for, for coming and, and for your partners who probably are those who didn't come who may be not so happy that they're not with you for New Year's Eve. I know that's me. Um, but we're here to really, you know, share some tools and some practices that can hopefully help us really move us forward in our lives. And so I, I, I look at the Dharma as that it boils down to kind of two things, really. The understanding, number one, is the understanding of the mental activities that lead to suffering, right? Just understanding the mental activities that lead to suffering. And the second one is developing wholesome mind states that end suffering and lead to freedom. It's pretty simple. It's, so first we have to see it. We have to understand the mental activities. And notice that everything is up on, you know, I didn't talk about anything exterior. I'm talking about the, what we have control of. And so understanding the mental activities that lead to suffering is the first part. And a part of that is what we call, um, in, I guess in kind of Buddha speak, cultivating a wise view to see things as they really are. And that is a part of what the understanding that we need to have is cultivating this wise view to see things as they truly are. And then we work next to develop these wholesome mind states that that end suffering and lead to freedom. So the Buddha said also that, you know, I teach two things and two things only. 
That is suffering and the end of suffering. And that's pretty much what I I just said. Um, So seeing things as they truly are. That's a big statement, seeing things as they truly are. The true nature of reality. What is the true nature of reality? The supposition here is that if you see the true nature of reality, you know, unbiased, not the way you want it to be, but the true nature of it, that you then accept it and you don't struggle against it, go with it, and that leads to liberation. That leads to less suffering. And I do believe it's true. You know, there are people who I've heard the saying, you probably have heard it too, that what stress is, that stress is not accepting what is. So the gap between what is and what you want it to be is stress. Not accepting things the way they are. Causing stress. So then the big drum roll question is, what is the true nature of reality? What is it? And so I want to go back a few years and into my history. And um, in my meta talk, I spoke a little bit about my family. And um, for those of you who were not here during that time, um, I mentioned the fact that I come from a family that has really a lot of love in it, a really great family. And I have an experience throughout many years that I want to share with you that point to, in my opinion, the answer to this question. So it all begins with, um, i tell you a little bit about my brother. And my brother's name is Larry, just like Nollyway's dad's name's Larry. Funny. I just found that out yesterday. That was her dad's name. Um, Larry Mason. So Larry was six years older than me. There's four of us, four, four children. I'm the youngest. He was the oldest. He's seven years, I'm sorry, seven years older than me. And Larry Mason was born in this very sick body. He, had, he was born with asthma. Um, he was the kid with asthma. The family was always in emergencies with his asthma. We had to move because of it in different um, kinds of climates that he can only live in. Um, so he always had, he was tiny, too. I mean smaller than me. He was a tiny guy. And, but meanwhile, he had this really, really brilliant mind. Um, and he was actually a, what I would consider a philosopher, an intellectual. And in 1966, he went to college um, at UCLA, and then he transferred to Berkeley. And, and so all the time when Larry and I were growing up, he kind of saw me as he saw me, basically. And he, my education was not only in school, but I had a parallel education going on at home that he gave me books and I was reading. And so he really educated me way more than what school ever did, to tell the truth. Um, I mean, you know, at the age of 13, I received the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. And, you know, that was pretty heavy stuff. And, you know, I got through it. Um, and then, you know, right after that, I got, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, I received, and we talked about this yesterday, Herman Hesse, Siddhartha. I mean, I was receiving all these books and just reading through them. And he was just, we had this co-education going on on the side, right? 
And so I felt like I was a project of his. And we, we had this incredible relationship, Larry and I. And, um, and it started very early on, and it went on through, until um, the end, really. So I followed his trajectory. So, so Larry was, you know, he, he came out first as a black nationalist, right? And, and it was in the 60s and black power and all that good stuff. And, and then he went from there to a communist. And, and that's when, of course, I got the Communist Manifesto, um, and then he went from there to a socialist, and he realized, you know, socialism is, 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 is the thing. And from there he went to a spiritualist. And, and then it was all about spirituality and spiritual books. And so I followed that trajectory. I was a black nationalist. I was a communist. I was a socialist. <laughs> and now I'm a spiritualist. And so I got that entire trajectory from him, and it was really um, quite an amazing um, path that I followed. And we were so close, so, so very close, and even looked alike, you know. And, and so, um, but in 1970, um, now along the way, Larry was always sick, but in 1970, he really got ill, and he, his kidneys failed. Both of his kidneys failed. And at that time, we didn't know about dialysis. It was 1970. The dialysis machine wasn't well known. It was just being developed in San Francisco at UC San, uh, San Francisco, actually, at Medical Center. And he was, like, dying in a hospital. We found out about it, this kidney machine. We rushed him over there, and he gets on dialysis. And at that time, dialysis was really, I don't know if any of you know anything about it, but it was very new and meant that, you know, you were on for four or five days a week for eight hours at a time. I mean, it was just like... And really hard on the body, really hard on the body. And so, but Larry lived through a lot of that. And throughout his lifetime, he became more and more and more disabled because of all the testing and all. He was one of the first dialysis patients in America, really. And he had a couple of transplants and all kinds of things his body went through. And so his body was never the thing, you know? His body was never the thing, but his mind and his spirit was, it never waned. It never waned. And so the thing that I loved about this man is that he didn't allow his body to be him. He didn't allow his body to be him. He knew that he was more than his body. And people would come to him because he was at home, you know, he was more disabled. And oh, by the way, Throughout this, he got a law degree at Bolt and passed the bar and got a master's in economics and all these other things. And he, he practiced law for free, you know, all pro bono. He never made a dime. And he just did his thing from his bed. And people came to him. And he would sit up in his bed and hold court and just really with books all around him. And just, he was just brilliant. And everyone loved his mind and his soul and his spirit. And he and I were just two peas in a pod, really. And, of course, I followed him, and I went to Berkeley. And, um, and so it was really a wonderful, wonderful relationship. And a lot of it was that what I learned from him, because what he started to do, what he became, is he would look at reality and say, like people would look at him and say, and feel sorry for me. He's like, no, don't feel sorry for me. Don't feel sorry for me. I'm perfect. This is exactly what my life is to be. This is it. And it's good. 
And so he talked about the nature of reality. Like, you know, we'd be talking and he'd sit in like that chair that you're sitting in. Like, that's really, you really think you're in a chair. But point to the chair. Where's the chair? What, what's chair? That's really a bunch of, there's more space than anything. is space and there's a few particles in there. But so he was really, he looked at life and every conversation you had with him was like, like that, right? He talked about the nature of reality. He lived in a place where, um, in Berkeley, I don't know if a lot of you, some of you are from the Bay, in a place where it was all people who were disabled. And so his friends were, you know, his next-door neighbor was a guy that didn't have arms, who was in a wheelchair and had a motorized chair and something from his head that pushed the button for him to go. These were his friends. And he would say things like, don't feel sorry for them. These are my friends. These are, they, this is exactly, this is life too, Kanda. This is also life. Life is all of this. And not to feel sorry because this is just how life is showing up. And so he lived this incredible life where he pushed the edges for everybody to accept life just as it is. Okay? And it was, it was amazing how he never, ever felt sorry for himself. And he depleted and he depleted and he depleted. And he eventually passed away. And when he did, Larry Mason, being typical Larry, before he left his body, he was in the hospital and he said, Hey, Khan, would you call me Khan? You know, when I die, just walk away. Leave the body. Because he didn't believe in the death business and how expensive it was. And it's just about his, right, his anti-capitalism came through. He was like, just leave my body. Just walk away, Con. Just walk away. Because they, they got to do something with it. Don't spend a dime on it. That, that was, that's how deep his, his, he was. Of course, I didn't do that. I couldn't walk away. But I learned from him so much. And I didn't have a name for it at the time. It didn't, it was just Larry's philosophy and and the nature of reality and learning from him and being by his side. And it really educated me and left the imprint of who I am. I absolutely wouldn't be who I am today without him in my life all these years. And the truth of the matter is that without getting, you know, morbid or anything, but my entire family has this kidney disease. And my mother and my uncle and my grandmother and my other brother also all died from it. And so it's been a real interesting journey. Because when I, w- in, when I was talking earlier during my Metta talk, I talked about the love for my family. And I know, you know, some people remarked that, you know, I was happy for you and... It was like, oh, I didn't get that. But what I didn't say is this part of it, you know? So it was like I, ha- I got dealt the cards, like, good news. Here's the good news. You're going to have a family that's deeply loving, deeply loving. And the bad news is that it's not going to last long. They're going to leave. And that's what happened. And so there is just me and my sister who we live together. And everybody's gone from this kidney disease. And so 
But we all huddled around each other through this whole plight. And I have to say that it has been the biggest, most important lesson of my life, both the living and the dying, the living and the dying. So not long after everybody died, um, my brother's, Dwayne was my brother's name. He, Kettle is what we call my mom. We were all really just love bugs. Um, After everybody died, I went on a month-long retreat at Spirit Rock. And, of course, for the first half of the retreat, I just, like, sobbed, right? First half of the retreat, I was just, like, the whole time. And then the second half of the retreat, it just so happened that the lesson was on the three characteristics of existence. Now, I just knew that Larry had something to do with that. (laughs) He was like, don't forget what I've told you, coming through, you know, all these different teachers. And so I sat there, and I realized, listening to the three characteristics of existence, the true nature of reality... I realized this is the same exact stuff that Larry was telling me. That not only did he tell me, but he showed me. And that I lived through. Because he taught me to let go of him. He actually taught me how to let go of him. And, you know, he almost would beat me to death into it, you know? He was just, like, brutally honest. And he really taught me to let go. So I had this lived experience by the time I heard about the three characteristics of existence. And so it happens that I'm really happy to share it with you and to share this teaching because I feel like I really do know it and I embody it in a, in a very lived way. So when I think about the Buddha... And he wasn't just this holy man. He, he reminded me of Larry. I guess he was before Larry, so maybe Larry was reminded of him. But in that, he was like this, this scientist, this physician, this, this, this social scientist, a philosopher. You know, everything, it was, he was, you know, everything was, it was logical. It was logical. And so when he, when the Buddha started... Um, He saw life just as it is, and that's what he did. He saw life just as it is, and he broke it down into bite-sized pieces so we can understand it. And so his first teaching, which happened in a place called Deer Park in Sarnath in India, his first teaching was the Four Noble Truths. And just like a physician, he diagnosed a problem. He said, life is challenging. Life is utterly challenging, stressful, and has suffering, right? And there's a cause for the suffering, that there is a cause, and that cause is craving, all right? Here's the good news. Peace is possible. That sensation can happen. And then he laid out the prescription and the plan, the path, the eightfold path. This is what you do. So that was the Four Noble Truths, that was his first teaching to his five disciples that were, that were there at the time. And so, but in order to end suffering, 
this, this eightfold path, it begins with right or wise view. How you see things. You have to begin with your world view. How you see things is how you live. How you see things is the things that lead, that are behind what you say and what you do and how you think. And so wise view is how he began. And he gave us this map. And so I think of it as just like if you were to drive from here to California, you have to head west, right? You may not know anything else, but you know you got to head west. Right view was like that. It was like where, how you get going. And so to end suffering, right view begins with what? The true nature of reality. You have to see the true nature of reality. And that is, here we go with the three characteristics, okay? They are impermanence, which is also called anicca. Suffering, stress, which is called dukkha in Pali, dukkha. And the third is a little bit more complicated called not-self, which is called anatta. So impermanence, suffering, and not-self are the three characteristics of all existence. And it's the same thing that Larry Mason told me. Okay? So I'm going to begin and break them down. A Nietzsche, a impermanence. So as we know, I think all of you probably know, and there's people who are new here who may not have heard this, but it is absolutely the foundational premise of Buddhism is impermanence. From the smallest microorganism in the, on the planet to the universe itself, It is all impermanent and changing. Things are not constant. Things are not permanent. Everything that arises also passes away. All conditioned reality. It just is how it is. Everything that is conditioned will pass away. Okay? They come into existence and they leave existence, or they shift and change. Nothing stays the same. You know that. You know that. Examples of, you know, from empires that have come and gone, and kind of wondering, (laughs) what's going to happen here? (laughs) Um, And it's not just physical things and material things, but also mental activities. They come and they go. For example, what's important to you? What's important to you today is not what was important to you when you were five, right? You don't care about that dolly, maybe. (laughs) Hopefully. Our likes and our dislikes change. I used to hate avocados. You can't put an avocado in front of me now without me taking it down. Our beliefs change. Everything changes right, over time. And we know that things are impermanent, but what we have a a challenge with is actually perceiving it, perceiving change. Some change is obvious, but some is not. And for us to perceive it is sometimes difficult. I have a, um, a favorite artist that wrote a song that I love. Y'all know Joni Mitchell? Yeah? Yeah? Joni? I love Johnny. And um, I hope I brought it. 
Yeah. Joni Mitchell. She's one of my favorite lyrics. Ridiculous. She wrote the song called Down to You. And it goes like this. I, I wish I could sing it, but I, I, won't, I won't torture you. Everything comes and goes, marked by lovers and styles of clothes. Things that you held high and told yourself were true, lost or changing as the days come down to you. Down to you, constant stranger. You're a kind person. You're a cold person, too. It all comes down to you. And then there's a lot in between. And then the next, ver- the next one is, everything comes and goes. Pleasure moves on too early, and trouble leaves too slow. Just when you're thinking you finally got it made, bad news comes knocking at your garden gate. Knocking for you, constant stranger. You're a brute. You're an angel. You can crawl, and you can fly, too. It all comes down to you. That's Joni. And if that's not the truth of change, you yourself are your own constant stranger. You're all of those things. So also, when we talk about um, impermanence, the Buddha also said that impermanence, that whatever is impermanent is also dukkha. Okay? Whatever is impermanent is also suffering, is also dukkha. Because we don't want it to change. We want to hold on, we want things to remain the same. And it turns into dukkha. And that's where dukkha comes in as one of the next characteristics of existence. This unsatisfactoriness, this, this, this suffering, this pain, it's the first noble truth, Right? That life is challenging. Life is challenging. We want comfort and safety. There's something about this human existence that feels like we need comfort and safety. And and life is just filled with craving that can't be satisfied. We are insatiable in so many ways. And because no physical or mental object is permanent, our desires and our attachments to them cause us suffering. Think about that our desires and our attachment to that which is non-permanent causes us suffering. So as long as there is attachment to things that are unstable, unreliable, and changing, and impermanent, there will be suffering when they change and they become something that we don't want them to be. Sounds a little sad. doesn't have to be, though. It doesn't have to be. I want to also talk about the impersonal nature of suffering and the way that I see it. You know, we have our suffering. This is my suffering. And yes, that's true. And the paradox is that it's, it's not true at the same time. Right? Because suffering really is impersonal. You know how I see it? I see it like I, I am a filmmaker and I worked on the, the, um, the box set of The Matrix, the three, the three, the trilogy. And so I was around The Matrix a lot, too much. And um, you know the green things, that, that the, the green, all that? I see that as dukkha. It's almost like, I see like if we're walking down the street and it's raining like that and it's just raining dukkha. 
And let's say I'm walking here, boom, this dukkha falls on my head, boom, that dukkha falls on your head. And everybody has their own, but dukkha's just raining. And then you splash into these places of joy. And then there's joy as well. But dukkha is not personal. It's raining, and you have yours, and I have mine, but we all have it. It just is what life is, with the joy, with the beautiful splashes of joy as well. So it's not personal. And oftentimes we'll say, well, why me? You know, I look at Larry, and he really taught me that that is not a valid question. Why not me? He would say, why not me? He would say that. Why not me? Right? Why not him and his friends who, who lived in that place with him? This, too, is life. It's all life. It's all life. And so there's an acceptance that's necessary for us. And I'm going to get into anatta next, which is this not-self business. Because the nature of all phenomena is change and and impermanent, right, there is really nothing inherently substantial about it, if you think about it. It's like there's nothing substantial to hold on to because it's constantly moving and changing. It's almost like sands through your fingers. And so this, this concept of, of not-self is, is the fact that there's no inherent essence, no permanent self, or unchanging soul. It just keeps changing. And so it's thought of as not-self, is how it's called. It goes back to Larry asking me, where is the chair? There's no chair there. There's a lot of atoms in space. Right? So as not to worry, I want you to be clear, yes, you are real. You are here. Okay? Because that's the first thing. Well, what about me? Am I? Yeah. You're definitely here. Take a deep breath. But the I that you think you are that's permanent isn't. It isn't really. And I think you know that. The I that you have put all these things around that is constantly changing isn't permanent. Who you were when you walked into this, this room the first day and who you are right now is different has changed, right? So if we begin to understand this true nature of reality, what happens is that with this view, with this lens, we actually can create greater happiness for ourselves. Okay? So going back to my family... I really feel like they came into my life and I came into theirs and this, this, these souls came together these, to teach me not only how to love, which they did. They really taught me how to love. But they also taught me about Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. And it was through their living and their dying 
that it came, and it came really clear. And it came really clear. Because at one point, I super identified with my family. I mean, that, you know, when you talked about me, you had to talk about them. Or I had to, when I introduced myself, I mean, I was like Larry Mason's little sister, right? I identified so strongly. So when they were gone, it was like, so who am I? Who am I now? You know, my reference point was gone. But in that retreat at Spirit Rock, what it was replaced with was this incredible liberation by the time I left there in this letting go. I saw the beauty of the mystery of life that Larry had been telling me about. I actually felt it and saw it. And I saw, you know, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows all make it all up. This is what life is, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful, even in its pain and suffering. And I was able to get to that place by the end of that retreat. And it gave me a freedom and a letting go. And it hasn't changed. It hasn't shifted yet. There's a certain kind of a, I I call it a detachment. I don't know a better word. Detachment, but I'm not detached because I'm actually out of my detachment. This sort of kind of detachment, it's been filled up with more love than I ever had before. Because I have this absolute understanding and this depth of life that I think is stunningly beautiful. And it's giving me a liberated heart to really accept life as it shows up. Is it perfect? No. Do I hold on to things? Absolutely. And it's so much easier for me to just let it go. And my mantra is not me, not mine, not I. When I see myself getting caught up in something, not me, not mine, not I. And I release. Because I really understand that it really is not me, nor is it mine nor is it I. There's something other than that. So so I know that this year, this new year, as we face the, the coming of a new year with anxiety and curiosity and angst and joy and terror and peace and sadness and questions and excitement, all of it, we all know one thing for sure, and that is that things are going to change. There's going to be change. You know, being in, in groups with you, some of you express your concern about your work life or your relationship life or your family, your kids, your parents, your friends, the state of our nation, the state of the global climate. They're all big concerns. And we all want to have some sort of control so that we can actually have our desired outcome. Right? And yet, we know that more than likely, we really won't have control over most things. 
or have control over some things, but not over most. And that our human life is temporary. And that's where the fear comes. That's where the fear comes. And as we learn to let go, I want to be really clear and accept things as they are. That can be misleading and confusing, so I want to be clear about that. Because there are those of us, like myself, who are activists in the world and are doing everything I can to make change. So here I am saying two things out of the side of my mouth, right? That you can't, that change is, accept it, but work towards change. Those of you, I don't know if you know who Vandana Shiva is. She is an incredible woman, East Indian woman, who is an environmentalist, activist, scholar. Um, she works in environmental issues, and she's amazing, Vandana Shiva. She was asked this question. She's a very incredible activist in the world. And she was asked this question, how do you do it? And this was her answer. Well, it's always a mystery because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged. But this much I know. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that itself creates new potential. And I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because those are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make. And you can make that deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world, of course, and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them, but then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself up in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think that we owe each other, what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. I could not have said it better. So we do detach and we work for change. It is a paradox. But if we can let go of getting ourselves in a knot around the outcome, that's the key. And do everything you can to work for change. So I want to quote a little quote here by our dear Ram Das, who passed away last Sunday at the age of 88. He was 
my teacher's teacher and close friend. And there's so much. Oh, his leaving is a big, big event on the planet. And yet he spent his whole life teaching us how to die. So if anybody was ready to go, it was Ram Dass. And he said something about how can we make friends with change? So this is his answer on how to make friends with change. The dominant quality of form is change because all forms are in time. That's another way of saying we don't know what will happen from one instant to the next. Or as one of my friends is fond of saying, don't be surprised to be surprised. For instance, I didn't anticipate I'd be living in a wheelchair today. The way to live with change is to be completely present in the moment. Remember, be here now. We cannot cling to forms or our experience of them because they decay and dissolve back again into their formless state. What is, really there, what is really there to hold on to? In reality, there is nothing permanent, nothing solid, nothing constant except relativity and change themselves. When we realize how finite are the limits of gratification or possible fulfillment within the play of forms, then despair arises. That despair is born of the world-weary understanding that nothing in form can provide ultimate meaning. It also forces and demands awakening and seeks transcendence of suffering. In youth, our lifetime seems to stretch infinitely before us. But as we age, the accumulation of our experience seems to have occurred in the blink of an eye. Even now that I'm 79 years old, is when he wrote this, I realize there's plenty of change to come before dying. Change in the body, change in friends and family, change in in my memory. These experiences lead to deepening wisdom and freedom and to diving deep within to the realm beyond form. So it is ours to be able to perceive and accept impermanence. This is our way out, to be able to perceive and accept it. And this is the beauty that brings us to mindfulness, the beauty of our practice. Because when we're being mindful, we're actually aware of and we get to perceive impermanence. Right? That itch on the forehead or that pain in the knee, it comes and it goes. That's what we're doing here as we sit and watch. Even our breath just comes and goes. So when we are able to perceive impermanence in what it really is, then it loses its delusional power that it has over us. It reminds me of when the Buddha was sitting in, under the, 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 the Bodhi tree and working his way towards enlightenment, and Mara would come. Mara is like the symbol, symbol of that 
that distraction that wants to take you away. And Mara will come and he say, I see you, Mara. I see you. And as soon as I see you, Mara, Mara was gone. I see you. Right? So, if we can perceive impermanence, if we can really perceive it and take it in and understand it and the dukkha and anatta, it is the key that leads us to liberation. So meditation is this invitation to sit in this loving awareness and to witness changes within our own self, within our thoughts, within our feelings, within our bodies, within our perceptions. We watch it. We watch it change constantly. And we just see just a flow of change. That is what we're doing when we sit. We're watching. And it leads me to think of us as seeing ourselves as verbs instead of nouns. Can you see yourself as a verb that's constantly changing instead of this this solid noun? And what that requires is what I call a thinning of the self. Because we've created these thick selves of who I am and my fixed views and all that I, how, you know, all my identities and everything that I am, this thick self we've created. Can we start to thin the self and realize the fluidity of life as it moves through us? Because we are not so solid. Nothing about us is fixed. Nothing. When I look at the human body and you know, some of the facts about the human body is that our skin cells are replaced every 39 days. Our skin cells, every 39 days, new skin cells, right? The liver cells are replaced every 300 to 500 days. Our whole skeleton is replaced every 10 years. You are not the same person, right? Red blood cells, they change every 120 days. And so if you could begin to... to See yourself and see life from this point of view and, and not hold on to something that you think is the solid and allow the flow because it's going to change. And there's a wisdom that you can rest in that has come from this, these teachings from the Dharma. There's a deep wisdom that, to rest into. There's a couple of sayings. Ajahn Chah, who was the, again, our teacher's teachers, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon, and they were all over in India. And Ajahn Chah, who was actually in um, Southeast Asia, he was their teacher. And this is one of the things that, that Jack Cornfield told me that he always said. This was his mantra. This is uncertain. No matter what happened, His response was, this is uncertain, (laughs) right? His koan, that kind of, you know, Jack has very fond memories of that. (laughs) This is uncertain. I heard the Zen master Suzuki Roshi always said, not always so. He also said, when you realize that things change, 
and you find your composure in it, then you find yourself in nirvana. Not that nirvana is a place, it's the peace inside yourself. When you find your own composure in change. So I went to India recently. Um, Actually, I just got back the first week of this month in December, and it was my first trip. I fell in love with India. I fell in love with India. And I went on the holy sites. I saw all the Buddhist holy sites. I went on this holy sites tour, and it was, it was amazing. And as I sat there in Deer Park in Sarnath, where the Buddha's first turning of the will, they called it the turning of the will of the Dharma, where he gave the lessons of the Four Noble Truths and the Three Characteristics and also Dependent Co-Arising, which is a whole other retreat. I was there, and I could feel the transmission. I could feel the transmission. I could feel my relationship to the teachings in a way that I never felt it before. I sat underneath the stupa, which is this stupa, (laughs) and um, (laughs) I meditated on the grounds of the stupa, And Larry Mason came to me, my first guru. The depth of the teachings, of his teachings, came to me, and of the teachings of the Buddha. And I thought, what a blessed life I have. And I realized at that point in time that I have actually picked up where Larry left off. I never thought that before. And it hit me that I have somehow picked up where Larry left off. Because at that Spirit Rock retreat, after Larry had vanished and the family had vanished, and except for my sister Smiley, who I live with, I really got the download. And I accepted Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. And these lessons are ingrained in me forever. They really are. And it has created what I think of as a healthy sense of detachment. That, like I said, that has actually steeped me into a deeper love for life. And for all of us navigating all of these koans and paradoxes and hard spaces. Yeah. It's been quite a journey. And I know that as I sat there and my family was with me there in India. And I want to leave you with um, another saying that Ajahn Chah there, he was, um, there's something called home. So this is a small excerpt from a very long um, piece that he was sitting with a woman who was dying and she brought him to by her side. And he said this and it was translated. And this is just a small section of it. And fabrication, he talks about fabrication. Fabrication is, is form, right? 
phenomena, our fabrication. This fabrication, this body and mind, is inconstant. It's not dependable. It's here, and then it's not. It's born, and then it passes away. But we human beings want it to be constant. That's the thinking of a fool. Just look at your breath. It goes out, and then it comes in. It comes in, and then it goes out. That's the nature of breath. It has to be that way. It has to change to go back and forth. The affairs of fabrication depend on change. You can't have them not change. Just look at your breath. Can you keep it from coming in? Does it feel comfortable? If you draw in a breath and then don't let it go out, is that any good? Even if you want it to be constant, it can't be constant. It's impossible. It goes out and then it comes in. It comes in and then it goes out. It's such a normal thing. We're born and then we age. We age and then we get sick and die. It's so normal. But we don't like it. It's as if we wanted the breath to come in and not go out or to go out and not come in. But when it comes in and out, then goes out and in, then, then we can live. Thank you for your kind attention. May all beings, may all beings be at peace and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.